Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hey Nick, did you ever have to write one of those what I did over my summer vacation essays in grade school? Yeah, all the time. Uh, in fact, my finest summer vacation was playing Sam Gamgee in an eight-hour production of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> okay, I wasn't expecting that. That is, that's really, that's ambitious. But still, your thing is not as ambitious as designing a, you know, new system of government. Yeah, nowhere near as ambitious as that. No, right, because that's totally insane. You can't pull that off in four months. And yet, that is how we got our current system of government. A bunch of guys in the stifling heat in Philadelphia in this airless room with the windows nailed shut in the middle of the summer wrote our Constitution in four months. And then they stepped outside and showed the world their, you know, what I did on my summer vacation essay. By essay, you mean the Constitution. I do. The delegates to the convention published their Constitution in newspapers throughout the 13 states. And they were probably hoping for a pretty positive response. But that is not what they got. A mere 10 days after the Constitution is signed, I mean, the ink is barely dry on this thing. Some guy named Cato writes this op-ed basically saying, I know that it's really exciting that this new Constitution was signed by people like George Washington. But just be careful about it. It might not be all it's cracked up to be. What, someone's already Constitution bashing? What does this Cato guy know? Who is Cato, anyways? Has he even read the Constitution? Well, he has. But before we get into that introductions, I am Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And this is Civics 101. And today we are diving into one of the most high-stakes, eloquent, intense public battles in the history of the United States. The battle that pitted the pro-Constitution Federalists against the anti-Constitution anti-federalists. And it sounds like the whole thing started with this guy named Cato. It did indeed. The op-ed that launched a thousand ships. As far as who Cato is and what he actually knows, we're not totally sure about that. It's most likely George Clinton, the governor of New York, but it could also be this New York politician John Williams. Whoever it is, he almost certainly did not attend the Constitutional Convention. Right, so Cato's a pseudonym. Correct. It's referring to a politician in ancient Rome who killed himself because he didn't want to live in Julius Caesar's new government. Cato was all about defending the Roman Republic. That is a little on the nose. Cato's saying he'd rather die than live under this new constitution? Bingo. At the time, most educated men would have picked up on the symbolism of this. The name Cato had actually been used to critique the British government in the past. Okay, so the framers are a bunch of classics nerds. I can appreciate that. I think it's kind of endearing. But why New York? This essay gets published in New York. It's written by a New York politician. New York, what's your damage? Well, New York is not super happy with the new constitution. Of the three delegates they send to the Constitutional Convention, two walk out. Only Alexander Hamilton stayed behind, but he's pretty thrilled with the Constitution. A lot of New York congressmen do not feel the same way. They do not want to see the states consolidated under this one powerful central government. And they really don't believe that the Constitution can guarantee equal and permanent liberty, like its proponents claim. So who's Cato writing the op-ed for, exactly? 
The whole Cato-Roman Republic metaphor seems like pretty inside baseball. Like, your average farmer probably doesn't know what's being referenced here. You know, the average farmer is not who Cato is speaking to. Right now, the Constitution is only a piece of paper with a bunch of ideas. It doesn't carry any real power. And Cato wants to stop that power from happening altogether. All right, so he's talking to the guys in charge. Yeah, politicians, delegates. White, literate men. Of course, those are the ones who were at the Constitutional Convention. Those were the ones who were going to be in the ratifying conventions. This is Claire Griffin. She's a former government and history teacher and a consultant in civic education. Like she said, the Cato letter is addressed to the people who will be voting on whether or not to ratify the Constitution. Nine out of 13 states have to ratify in order for the Constitution to go into effect. And the Cato letter is the first of many, many op-eds criticizing the Constitution. Well, they were a series of about 150 articles written by quite literally dozens of opponents to the Constitution. Uh, these were published not just in New York, but in New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Maryland. Again, kind of the same time frame, September of 1787 through December of 1788. And their purpose was to dissuade the delegates to the ratifying conventions from supporting the Constitution. Also, it wasn't just Cato. Nope. They had a Brutus, a Sentinel, they had an old wig, and that's W-H-I-G. Collectively, these writers were known as the anti-federalists, and these were really smart men with really well-informed ideas. All right, so being an anti-federalist doesn't make you unreasonable or opposed to government of any kind, necessarily. Not at all. Before we go on, I, I should almost apologize for calling them anti-federalists because nobody wants to be called anti anything. And that name, anti-federalist, actually came from the federalists to describe their opponents. And because history is often written by the victors, the name anti-federalist has stuck, and we'll use that in our conversation. They would have called themselves pro-Republicans, Republican with a small r. Wait, what does she mean by that, small r Republicans? Oh, what she means is as opposed to the big R Republican Party. Small R Republicans are just in favor of a republic, which most basically is a government where power rests with the people. They're anti-federalists because they're not thrilled with strict federalism, which is basically a centralized federal government that works with smaller state and local governments. The anti-federalists would prefer a government closer to the Articles of Confederation, with its really weak central government and plenty of state power. But the guys who are writing what we call the anti-federalist papers, they wouldn't have actually called themselves anti-federalists, right? No, no way. Their opponents gave them that label, which is actually a pretty strong PR move, calling a group anti-anything. It just makes them seem negative. And in this case, the other group of guys calls themselves the Federalists. The Anti-Federalists probably would have called them the anti-little-r Republicans. All right, so when do the Federalists actually enter the fight? So far, we've just got this op-ed by Cato. Yeah, it's actually quite a while before the Anti-Federalists make their move. The little-r Republicans have published 21 statements by the time we hear from the pro-Constitution guys, which I found pretty surprising. 
Because when I learned about this time period in school, I learned about the Federalists. The Federalists were this big deal, these guys who explained the Constitution. And I'm almost certain that I didn't read a single anti-Federalist paper back then. And yet, they were the ones who kicked everything off. We might not have the Federalist papers as we know them today without the anti-Federalists. So I'm guessing the pro-Constitution framers get to a point where they're like, all right, enough. We can't let this go anymore. These guys are killing us with bad press. Exactly. And they're not just in New York anymore. Cato inspired critics in other states as well. But the soon-to-be capital F Federalists aren't just, you know, sitting there twiddling their thumbs while all of this is going on. They're making plans. And then on October 27th, it happens. The first Federalist essay hits the presses of a New York paper. Number one, the very first one written by Alexander Hamilton, in which he's laying out the case for a, a new constitution, something to replace the Articles of Confederation. Federalist One, otherwise known as Publius One. Publius? <laughs> yes, yes. It's a silly sounding name. Publius was a guy in ancient Rome who helped to overthrow the monarchy and create the Republic of the People. Oh, that is a clever move by Hamilton, right? Because Cato kicked things off with a name that's in defense of the Republic, and then Hamilton comes back at him like, no way, man, you got this all wrong. I'm the guy who establishes a representative government. I'm the guy who gives power to the people. You must be the other guy. What I love about Federalist Number 1 is that Hamilton refers to the fact that the American people now have a chance to make decisions to create a government based on reflection and choice, not accident and force. Meanwhile, an anti-federalist calling himself John DeWitt publishes in Massachusetts. He reads the Constitution, and what he sees is this permanent document that will never change. He basically says, don't let them fool you. That amendment clause is useless. Congress is never going to achieve that three-fourths majority they're talking about because that would require too many people to agree. He calls it an absolute impossibility. That's interesting because we know that the Constitution does end up getting amended. But back then, there must have been so much anxiety about this new system of government. How could they possibly know it was going to work out? The Anti-Federalists are just saying, hey, we can't take this gigantic radical leap into a brand new system, especially one that throws us into a stronger government. We just escaped a stronger government. Right. And the Federalists were saying, look, we have got to beef up the federal government because the way that it is now is a disaster. We got it wrong. We went too far toward a government of the people. It is too divided. So the first Anti-Federalist drops in late September. Publius I arrives about a month later, and it says, OK, so we've heard some concerns. We are going to write a series of essays that are going to answer all your questions about this new constitution. This is Cheryl Cook Callio. She's a former teacher and former council member in Pleasanton, California. And then he and John Jay and Madison methodically went through every single thing that was concerning and tried to answer those questions in 85 essays. 85? 
How are we going to get through 85 essays in one episode? Actually, it's probably more than 85 because when you lump in the Anti-Federalists and a few other things written at the time, you're really looking at closer to 140 plus articles. But don't despair. The point of this episode is to get a sense of what this fight actually looked like. What were the arguments for and against this nation-changing document? And how did the Federalists' approach to these op-eds help their game? Uh, They were put in a collection, and they started to disseminate that collection throughout the colonies. And again, in contrast to the Anti-Federalists that were very much individual essays that were now written in defense of their position. So the Federalists are working together, and guys like Cato and Brutus and the old Whig are just coming at it from their own individual perspectives. The Anti-Federalists were certainly sharing their opinions with one another, but it wasn't a unified front the way that it was with Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and John Jay. Jay, by the way, wasn't at the Constitutional Convention, but he was a powerful New Yorker and Secretary of Foreign Affairs under the Articles of Confederation. So while the Anti-Federalists comprised over a dozen different authors and pseudonyms, those three Federalists published only as Publius. There were certainly other pro-Constitution people writing op-eds, but it was Publius who shone the brightest. Do you think that's part of the reason why the Federalists ended up being successful? You know, in my opinion, yes. And, and I base this on a, on a couple of things. One is that Hamilton and Madison in particular were planners. They had written out their justifications for particular things even before they would get into the Constitutional Convention. They would have the ammunition they needed to support something. Also, I think Madison, James Madison in particular, is a pragmatist. He knew that there needed to be a different type of government. He knew that under the Articles of Confederation, the government was way too weak to survive. And he was prepared to do what he needed to do to get a different structure in place. Here is another agreed-upon favorite that sheds some real light. This one is by James Madison. And actually, a lot of the favorites are by James Madison. I do like Federalist 10. I think that Madison was right when he said that factions are bad, but they're inevitable and that the only way to mitigate these factions is to balance them out. Madison published Federalist 10 on November 22nd. This is after anti-federalists like Cato expressed concerns about this centralized Congress with so many different special interests. Basically, he was saying, how is the government going to get anything done with this system? It'll be a house divided. It'll be useless, just a bunch of factions. Madison has to prove that the new system of government is actually the best way to deal with factions. But what did Madison actually mean by factions? Like political parties? Well, back in the day, the U.S. didn't really have the party system the way that it looks today. So it'd be less party factions and more like opposed special interest groups. And Madison's biggest concern was over the special interest groups who would fight against what was best for everybody. A good example back then would have been slave owners versus abolitionists. Here's Claire again. He's writing about the advantages of a large republic. Again, republic with a small r where individuals choose their elected representatives. Political philosophers before Madison were pretty certain that a republic would only work in a small 
geographically small area with a fairly homogeneous population. And Madison says just the opposite. He said a republic works best when the territory is large and expanded. And when there are so many different interests and groups, he used the word faction, that all these different interest groups offset each other. No minority is persecuted against. No majority ever has complete sway. Madison also focuses on the economy in Federalist 10. And at this point in history, the U.S. economy is really not doing so hot. He describes unequal property distribution with some people having everything and some people having nothing. And this, he says, can create factions too. The wealthy versus the poor. His large republic, where you've got a Congress representing the many scattered views of the common people, will work to balance this out. It seems like Madison and the other Federalists are going to have an answer for every concern the Anti-Federalists put their way. Yeah, they pretty much do. And a big part of defending the Constitution is explaining the Constitution. Like when anti-federalist Brutus argues that the Supreme Court would be, quote, exalted above all other power in the government and subject to no control. And Hamilton is like, okay, let me break it down for you. Number 78, Alexander Hamilton, again, is writing about the importance of the independent judiciary. And I'm not sure whether or not he really believed it, but he said that of the three branches, the judiciary would be the weakest. He said they have neither the force of the sword nor the pen, the idea being they have no way to enforce what their judgment is. And he also emphasized that they were called upon to exercise judgment about laws but not will, as in they are not the lawmakers. So when you hear discussions about uh, activist judges or judicial overreach, or even questions about judicial review, today, Hamilton was raising those questions back in 1788. And then there's the president. The anti-federalists looked at Article 2, and they were not happy with what they saw. I would imagine that anti-federalists are looking at the role of the president and thinking, hmm, this looks mighty familiar. Yep. But the Federalists believe that there is a very good reason for this executive power. Number 70, written by Alexander Hamilton. This is where he writes about the importance of energy in the executive branch. The writers of the Constitution were looking at the immediate past history when we were governed under the Articles of Confederation. One of the major weaknesses of the government under the Articles, there was no chief executive. And so Hamilton, whom some have called a monarchist, which I think is unfair, Hamilton was arguing for a strong executive individual and a strong executive branch. And the executive branch that's laid out in the Constitution doesn't say all that much about putting a check on this new executive. The anti-federalists feared that between veto power and pardon power, you'd end up with a president who could bend the nation to his will. Well, if you look, you know, throughout American history, we've had a series of very strong executives, and usually it's in times of crisis. Um, But is a strong executive best for our nation. You know, and the anti-federalists would say, you know, no, that's not such a good idea. 
Um, you know, the Federalists were arguing generally in favor of a large government, or at least a government larger uh, than that which had existed prior. And certainly big government can do great and wonderful things. But the anti-Federalists were saying, well, not so fast. Maybe we don't want a huge government bureaucracy. So it's kind of interesting. You could say that the Federalists were successful. You know, they got their desired outcome. The Constitution was ratified, and the Federalist Papers have become integral to our understanding of our founding. However, if you look at the Anti-Federalists, given some of the questions and concerns that, that they raised then that are still with us today, we may decide that, after all, they ended up having the last laugh. That is a really interesting point. The Federalists won, so that's the history that counts, right? And we look to the Federalist Papers to better understand the Constitution, and that makes them an amazing resource. But it does seem like the Anti-Federalists are raising valid points. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, the Anti-Federalists are posing a real threat. First of all, these essays are public. So if you can read and you don't like what you're reading about this proposed constitution, you might just give your representative an earful down at the tavern or out on the street or after church. And then there's the fact that some of these anti-federalists are going to be voting on whether or not to adopt the constitution. So they have a very real say in the future of the country. And on top of all that, the constitution only needs the support of nine states to be ratified, right? But... That means that as many as four states could choose not to ratify and potentially even sever ties with the new nation. So no more union. Union over. And the country ends up being the very failure that so many framers were anxious to prevent. So the Federalists do have to listen to the Anti-Federalists to an extent. And not just to calm their fears or do damage control with the Anti-Fed op-eds. Right. The Constitution is up for a vote in ratifying conventions across the country. And some states like Delaware, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, they're quick to ratify. They do it in December of 1787. But the op-eds don't stop. The Federalists and Anti-Federalists are still battling it out into the spring and then into the summer of 1788. Because there are a lot of very loud dissenters arguing that the Constitution is illegal under the Articles of Confederation, that it's a document written by wealthy upper-class people to benefit their own interests, that it deprives states of their individual rights in favor of this big central government. Yeah, how do the Federalists reconcile that issue? Because it sounds like anti-Federalists are all about states having sovereignty and looking out for their own and making their own choices. So how can the Federalists make this big government remotely appealing to them? Well, Madison does dig into that by explaining how, in broad terms, this government is going to work. Here's Cheryl again. When he's trying to explain it, one of the things he says, and this is a quote from Federalist 39, in its foundation, it is federal, not national. In the sources from which the ordinary powers of government are drawn, it is partly federal and partly national. In the operation of these powers, it is national, not federal. In the extent of them, again, it is federal, not national. And finally, in the authoritative mode of introducing amendments, it is neither wholly federal or wholly national. 
Now, that's enough to make anybody's eyes cross two or three times. It sounds like double speak. Yeah, I really don't understand what Madison is talking about. Is he canceling out his own argument? And what does he mean by federal versus national? Aren't they the same thing? When you deconstruct the paragraph, it really does illustrate the nature of federalism. Sometimes the states are in charge, sometimes the national government's in charge, and sometimes the federal government, which is the combination of the two, is in charge. And these things change depending on the circumstance. He would then go on to say that this is really a check, this idea that you have state power that doesn't belong to the federal government. An example of this is police powers. That's a state power. There's a number of things like that. And sometimes the lines are blurred and sometimes they're not. All right. So in other words, Madison is saying, look, this strong federal government is not designed to deprive states of all power. Sometimes the states get to decide and sometimes the federal government gets to decide. Sometimes... They decide together. Right. He's saying this document is not as extreme as these anti-federalists are making it out to be. Don't worry. You'll retain some states' rights. Of course, that doesn't address the little problem of the federal government being at the top of the food chain. And the anti-federalists are like, we're afraid of tyranny, remember? And this Constitution doesn't say anything about protecting the little guy. You can't just kind of vaguely say, don't worry, individual citizens, you'll be fine. The anti-federalists want this in writing. Okay, I've been waiting for this. This is the big old glaring omission in the Constitution of 1787, and we're talking about the Bill of Rights. Where's that Bill of Rights? That is exactly what the anti-federalists were saying. Where is the Bill of Rights? It might seem like a no-brainer for us, but... At the time, the Federalists were like, no, 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 we don't need to add anything to the Constitution. It's overkill. It's redundant. The last uh, Federalist paper, which is probably significant for what it argues against, not for what it argues in favor of, is number 84, in which Hamilton argues against a Bill of Rights. Now, today for us in the 21st century, a Bill of Rights is sacrosanct. It's right up there with the Declaration and the Constitution. It is one of the founding documents. It's hard for us to understand how could we not have a Bill of Rights. But if you look at Hamilton's arguments, they could be pretty persuasive. Hamilton's main argument was that there's protection kind of built into the Constitution already. The federal government only has the powers that are laid out in the Constitution. And this idea of making a list of what the government is not allowed to do to individuals or to states, well, Hamilton says if you start listing them at all, you've got to list all of them. And by the way, you're bound to forget something, and if it doesn't end up on the list, well, the government might have the power to impose it. All right, so I know we've been saying the anti-federalists lost the war, but they did win this battle. Big time. At the end of the Federalist Anti-Federalist Saga, we are going to have a Constitution. But first, the Anti-Federalists need a little something. Actually, they need ten little somethings. Ten somethings that will change the course of history and come to mean everything to the American people. In a last-ditch effort to save the Union, our civil liberties will be born. But how does it happen? How in Sam Hill does it happen, Nick? Find out next time on Civics 101.
Thanks for joining us for another installment of our foundational document series here on Civics 101. This episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Our staff includes Jackie Helbert, Daniela Vidal-Ali, and Ben Henry. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is that other glaring omission from the U.S. Constitution. We could only cover so many Federalist and Anti-Federalist thoughts in this episode, but we've got links to plenty more on our website, civics101podcast.org. Music in this episode by Quinzas Moreira, Blue Dot Sessions, and Jazar. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.